What's up, folks? Welcome back to the Whoop Podcast, where we sit down with top athletes, researchers, scientists, and more to learn what the best in the world are doing to perform at their peak and what you can do to unlock your own best performance. I'm your host, Will Ahmed, founder and CEO of Whoop, and we are on a mission to unlock human performance. On this week's episode, I am joined by former Missouri Secretary of State Jason Kander. Before being elected Secretary of State in 2012, he was a member of the Missouri House of Representatives. Jason is also a veteran of the United States Army, achieving the rank of captain during his service as a military intelligence officer in Afghanistan. Jason has written two New York Times bestselling books, Outside the Wire, Ten Lessons I've Learned in Everyday Courage, and Invisible Storm, A Soldier's Memoir of Politics and PTSD, in which he writes candidly about his years battling undiagnosed PTSD. Jason and I discuss his decision to join the Army and his time in Afghanistan, some really amazing stories of his time investigating war criminals, Jason's battle with PTSD, dive deep into his decision to pull out of the presidential race in 2020 and the Kansas City mayoral race, how Jason deals with his mental health today, working with the veteran community, Jason is involved with multiple organizations, Jason's time on Whoop and how he uses it in his daily life, longtime Whoop member, and a look into Jason's political career. If you're thinking about joining Whoop, you can visit our website to sign up for a 30-day free trial membership and take the first step to unlock your own best performance today. New members can use the code WILL to get $60 credit on Whoop accessories when you enter the code at checkout of your new membership. If you have a question you want to see answered on the podcast, please email us, podcastatwoop.com, or call us, 508-443-4952. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Jason King. Jason, welcome to the Whoop Podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me at Whoop. Yeah, well, I'm grateful to have you I here. I pronounced it, by the way, in a very Kansas City way, which is yeah. embarrassing. As soon as I got here and saw, heard everybody pronouncing it, I realized I been pronouncing the thing that I wear the wrong way for several years because it's whoop not it's 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 it should be whoop whoop yeah I guess it rhymes um, with a loop yeah I'll do my best (laughs) well I appreciate having you here this is it's funny because you reached out to me on Instagram with a customer support issue (laughs) which was which was pretty bougie of me really yeah (laughs) and uh and I think fortunately we got that resolved but in the process you know I'd followed your career and I was uh, flattered that you were on whoop so I said hey let's do this podcast yeah well I'm glad you did my son's very impressed because it was like I made a customer service request and now we're in Boston yeah there's a lot to learn from that yeah (laughs) so I find it fascinating that you know you saw 9/11, and then you immediately enroll essentially in the U.S. Army. Take mm-hmm. me back to that moment in time and sure. your thought process. Uh, you know, I grew up like on the same. You know, we're around the same age, so I grew up on the the same 80s and 90s military action movies, right? So I think that seed was in there. You know, Iron Eagle and Top Gun and all that stuff. And also, you know, my grandfather and my great grandfather had served in the, in the military when a war had, had broken out. And it was, I always thought that made a lot of sense, the idea of like, when a war starts, you go, you serve, and then you get back and you live the rest of your life. And that always just made sense to me. So um, I was going to school in DC when 9-11 happened, and uh, I just decided right then that I was gonna, was gonna join. And, you know, I was going to school on the East Coast, so folks back home, where I'm from in Kansas City, like. That wasn't that surprising to them because 
back home, it's sort of a choice on par with college going into the military. But, you know, uh, my professors were like, came out of the Vietnam draft era and they all thought I was nuts. But it just made a lot of sense to me, the idea of like, the country's going to war and I'm not going to, I'm not going to not go. You know, it just seemed like that's what I'm supposed to do now. So. Did you have a number of friends that were going as well, or it was really just a personal decision? I had a, you know, there were a couple of guys like from my baseball team growing up back home, stuff yeah. like that, but it was very much a personal decision. I mean, it was just, I, I had always really admired service, and, and I think where my head was is like, well, one day maybe, like before 9 11, it was like, one day maybe I'll, I'll become like a, a reserve JAG officer or something, but I don't know if I ever would have done it. And then 9 11 happened, and it was like, no, I'm going to go into the army. I'm going to become an intelligence officer. It just changed the, it, it changed it in my mind from the maybe someday category to I'm going to do this and then I'll figure out the rest of my life around it. Um, now I ended up with a lot of great friends from it, but nobody that I like went in with or anything. So you get deployed into Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. What were some of your first impressions? I remember thinking it was like the moon with mountains. I mean, it was, it was barren, <laughs> um, but also... I guess first impression is like, like when you get there, you know, you've been through a fair amount of training and also like you're geeked up for it. You're, you know, this is like what you've been training for. And, and maybe it sounds, it sounds odd, but like I was very excited for it. You know, I knew it was dangerous, but I was excited for it because that was the point of joining. That was the point of, of all the training. And so I thought I was pretty tough, right? Like I had all my battle rattle on and uh, I remember the very first day uh, like catching my reflection uh, and thinking, man, I look pretty cool, right? <laughs> right? And feeling really good. And then we were going on a convoy to the base where I was going to be stationed. Uh, and I was expecting like armored Humvees and the stuff that we'd had like in training. And what pulled up were unarmored uh, Mitsubishi Pajeros, which is basically just Mitsubishi's version of a Ford Escape, uh, like no armor or anything like that. And that was when I immediately did not feel cool or tough or anything, I, I actually, I started to feel sick to my stomach. So my first impression was, or my first thoughts really in country were mostly, uh, I really hope I don't throw up on these people around me because I'm probably gonna spend this deployment with them and I, that would be a bad way to earn a nickname. And uh, luckily my stomach held and after first few times you get, you get pretty used to it, but it was, uh, it, it, the realism set in rather quickly. And you were investigating corruption, espionage, drug trafficking. Mm -hmm. What was that like? Oftentimes it was, it was just really exciting. The way I've described it in the past is uh, when you go into the military and you get a uniform, there's an aspect of that that like you can kind of, you can feel your place in the world and it really, uh, it helps you get a sense of yourself and how you belong and it gives you a sense of mission. And then if you deploy and you're in a job where you frequently don't wear the uniform, that's the next level uh, where you feel like a cowboy. And that was often how I felt, right? It was like myself and my translator and maybe sometimes a small team going out and figuring stuff out, you know, meeting with the people we need to meet with, trying to bring the information back. And there were times where it felt like a movie, right? But then other times where it was like, did I really do anything? You know, you would question like, okay, nothing really significant happened today. I went and we snuck around, we met with these people. It was very dangerous, but like, I didn't have a bullet whizzing by my ear or anything like that. And so sometimes it was just confusing. It was just like, am I really accomplishing anything? Am I really doing anything? Because it wasn't Black Hawk Down. It wasn't your conventional version of combat. Sure. And then years later, that was confusing for me, right? Because it, it wasn't what I had seen in the movies, but it had still had the same effect on me. So uh, 
the job was exciting. I learned a lot from it. They changed the job a lot after I left, it turned out, because we weren't necessarily doing it in the safest way, but I think we were doing it in the most effective way. Well, what, what did they change about it? Uh, they quit letting people just go out and be like, I'm taking this vehicle and we're going to meet with this guy in Kabul. It was like myself and my translator, sometimes myself and another guy from like the tactical human intelligence team. Uh, we would just, you just go tool around. You just go meet. I, I kind of thought of myself as like a gossip, col a gossip columnist in Kevlar, right? It was like just. That's a good way to put it. Yeah, it was like uh, my, my commander referred to it as thugant, which is short for thug intelligence, which is a term that I think he made up. Which is to say, uh, he defined it as, it is your job to develop relationships with thugs so that they will give us information on other thugs. Which meant you're frequently in situations where you're like, uh, is this guy my friend or am, am I at a high risk of kidnapping, right? That kind of thing, so. And you're traveling around in an unarmored vehicle, mm -hmm. right? That's your point about going from wearing the, the uniform to not. Yeah. And you've got your translator with you. And if you're looking around, paint that picture a little bit. Are you seeing a lot of people with guns? Are you seeing a lot of people you don't, obviously you don't know? Yeah, um, you get really uh, adept very quickly at sort of assessing each situation, right? Like how many, like when you go into in for a meeting, it's like, okay, how many entrances and exits are there to this place? How many, how many people, how many armed people that I see on the way in? How many armed people are in the room? How many armed people between the building and my vehicle? Uh, you know, where is the door, you know, in relation to my back, all that kind of stuff. What are the doors that are open or closed to rooms that I haven't seen in yet? All that kind of stuff. And then, you know, stuff you'd expect, watching people's hands, you know. Uh, it gets kind of difficult because you're usually working through a translator. So you're really working hard to sort of assess people's, um, assess people, you know, through the textured glass of translation that can be kind of difficult, so. Well, it's interesting to think about, you know, being in a room where you're listening to the voices, but you don't know what's being said. And so you're probably just hyper-focused on everything else, like the yeah. body language and the cues and the head nods. And It's where, it, you know, I think everybody's become very uh, aware of how a lot of us who served in Afghanistan and Iraq feel about our translators, and they see in the news how we're, so many of us have worked hard to, to get our translators and the other people we worked with back. But I, a big part of it that people don't get to hear about it is really why those relationships are, are so strong. Um, and a lot of it is because your translator, they're not just translating the words. I mean, they're your partner out there. And on top of that, they're a cultural translator. They're a guide. So like, you know, my translator kept me from making cultural or worse faux pas on numerous occasions by either translating my words differently than I said them, right. or when translating to me, telling me in English what he thinks this guy really means or what, what this guy is actually not telling us, that kind of thing. So they play an enormous role. You can't do it without them. Yeah, and it's also interesting to wonder whether the translator knows when he, he's speaking English back to you, whether he knows whether the opposition or the person mm -hmm. he's communicating with also speaks English or not. And it's way more often than they let on. Yeah, and it's way more often than they let on. And yeah. you, you learn to figure that out by when hmm. you're speaking English and, and your translator is looking at you, you do try and catch a glance at them because you can oftentimes notice that they have figured out and they're already formulating their response. And then every once in a while they'll trip up and they'll start responding in Dari or Pashto before the translator has actually finished translating. Um, 
and then you get a lot more careful. Yes, it's actually a funny story about that. I was meeting once with, um, with a high-ranking government official, uh, the attorney general of Afghanistan, and he was talking to me a lot about corruption and that kind of thing, and it was myself and actually um, and F- somebody from the FBI who had tagged along for the meeting. And he, at the end of it, uh, look, so during the meeting, he is telling us about this other person who was in the meeting. He was like a local prosecutor. And he's telling us in English because he had gone to George Washington for law school. So he's telling us in English that, um, you know, this, this gentleman to my right, he is very corrupt. And he, <laughs> uh, he has been a part of trying to assassinate me on numerous occasions. And the guy is sitting there, and, he, and we're laughing uncomfortably. And the, and the guy is sitting there, and he is doing a very good job of doing that laugh that people do when they don't understand the language, but they know a joke has been told. Yeah, you right. Know, like, ah, you know? And so, <laughs> and so then uh, the FBI person I was with went out to smoke a cigarette. And that, actually, that guy left, the other guy, and uh, the corrupt guy. And then uh, she went out to smoke a cigarette. And then um, we get ready to leave. She comes back up, and she just looks, like, white and shocked. And we get in the vehicle to leave, and I'm like, what is wrong? And she's like, I went out to smoke a cigarette. That guy was out there. He bummed a cigarette off me. And in perfect English, she was like, where are you from? I own some land in Nebraska. (laughs) So that's the kind of thing that happened. What was your daily routine like in Afghanistan? You know, if there was a daily routine, it was like uh, the, what what he was called, the J2, the Director of Intelligence for Afghanistan, might come to me and and say like, hey, the ambassador or the general needs to know more about this person, right? Like we're dealing with this person, maybe it's a high-ranking Afghan general or more likely it'd be like a a minister in the the government. We need to know more about like his activities in this province. And that would be basically the entire instruction. And then my translator and I, or sometimes I'd tag along with some other team and their translator, would just go out and I'd take two or three days and I'd sort of meet with some of the same people I would typically meet with they might mention somebody new and I might go meet with them. And then I come back and I, and I write it up. Uh, and then that would, it would be like a two page, here's the extracurricular activities of this fella. Uh, sometimes, usually I wasn't in a position to like make a recommendation, but if it was, it would be something like, perhaps we you know, move him to a different province because maybe get him away from the bad influence of like his either drug trafficking world or if he was double dealing or that kind of thing. Um, but usually, they didn't ask the intelligence folks for recommendations. They just asked us for assessments. And, uh, and so that's what I would do is like go out, learn as much as you can, um, meet with people of questionable, unsavory character in order to do it, and then write it up. And, and then the people who get paid more make decisions based on that information. And were you working out almost every day? Did you find you were getting fitter over there or less fit? I could see it either way. Uh, I, you're working out just because one of the great things about being in the Army is you know, unlike a lot of jobs, uh, you can just build an hour into your day for physical fitness and nobody cares, you know, yeah. whereas, whereas if you're like, um, in a lot of units, it's like everybody shows up in the morning for it, but like, it was a small camp, so it was like you were kind of on your own to do it. So it was, it was a small camp, so I would go and I would like do treadmill work and a little bit of weightlifting most days. Um, but really, uh, I guess I, I wouldn't say I got more fit because I had basically come almost directly from intelligence school where I'd been really fit. Um, but what I did do is I inadvertently lost like 15 pounds hmm. just cause you don't sleep, you know, um, you don't sleep, you're, you're under more stress than you realize. And so you just lose a lot of weight. And so I was, I was pretty underweight when I got home. Well, you, you've talked openly about, uh, PTSD and, and maybe we'll, we'll get to that. I just, I wonder like how much, 
how often you think back to different activities that you did when you were in Afghanistan or deployed? Uh, every every day. Almost yeah. every day. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, and before I got therapy for PTSD, it was like most parts of the day, you know, and not like in a nostalgic good way, usually, unfortunately. Right. Now, uh, I'm in a much better place with it, right? But I mean, you know, it's a, it's a very formative experience in my life. So uh, I think about it often. Um, and if not Afghanistan, at least the army, because it's such a formative experience. But but the difference now, post-therapy, is uh, it's the difference between thinking about it, recalling it, um, and, you know, uh, re-experiencing it, which, which is more what was happening when I had undiagnosed, untreated PTSD. And now um, that I've treated PTSD and I, and I maintain some things to, uh, for that treatment, like, you know, I have, I have nightmares occasionally and that kind of thing. Um, but it's, the best way to describe it is, is that, um, I, I consider myself to be in a post-traumatic growth phase of, sure. of life. And that to me means that it no longer, uh, disrupts my, my life on a, on a daily basis. There are times when things happen, things are triggering, that kind of stuff. But the difference is now I really know what to do with that. And for over 10 years, I didn't even know that's what was happening. I just thought I was messed up. I just thought I was crazy. You know? So for about 10 years, you had undiagnosed PTSD. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And to the extent you're comfortable talking about it, like I'm what? Totally comfortable talking about it. So what would be the extent to which you would you know, feel these? Like uh, the symptoms. Yeah. Yeah. So um, let me... It takes me a second, but I'll, let me go through sort of the, it's important to talk about, and I appreciate the question, because I find that the more I talk about this, the more people who might be experiencing it, whether it's from the military or something else, can hear it and go, oh, that actually sounds familiar. Yeah. And yeah. like, and so like when I wrote the book, it was uh, about, I, I kind of wrote it for me many years earlier, right? So um, when I first came home, it started with small stuff. It was like I had like a, a twitch in my in my eyelid that like didn't go away for six months, right? And and then I started to get um, nightmares. Uh, and at first, uh, actually, even before the nightmares, it was little stuff like I would get in a vehicle and my heart would race. And but that one I understood right away because I was like, okay, it just came from a place where every time I got in the vehicle to go outside the yeah, wire, the adrenaline kicks in. Yeah, because you're like, yeah. you're preparing your mind and your body to take a life if necessary right mm. and which thankfully i never had to do but like just it's not a natural act to prepare yourself to take human life so i that much i understood and then and over time that gradually went away now i learned years later in therapy that that's called prolonged exposure therapy you just go make yourself do something that you didn't want to do and eventually you become accustomed to doing it which i ended up doing with lots of other things but at that time i didn't know that i just knew oh i'm getting better right so that made me think, I must be fine. I'm getting better. Then the nightmares started. And the nightmares were basically everything that I feared happening in Afghanistan and was protecting against would happen in the nightmares. So um, the Taliban would rush in and you know, throw a bag over my head and take me away, that kind of thing. It was a lot of uh, kidnapping-centric uh, nightmares. And then uh, I always had a reason to try to tell myself, oh, I must be getting better, right? Um, which was based in nothing other than I had just decided that was important. Um, so then over time, the nightmares evolved. And now, eventually, they were rarely set in Afghanistan. They were often even not a military setting at all. They would be like my house in the middle of the night. And sometimes it wouldn't be the Taliban. It'd just be some stranger. And they'd be coming after my family. Now, I told myself, look, it's clearly not PTSD. It doesn't nothing to do with my service. 
I learned later in therapy, that's actually really bad when that happens because it, when your modern environs become the subject of your nightmares, then what happens is it contributes to this other symptom I had called hypervigilance, which was like the way I was describing earlier, always knowing where the doors are. That never stopped when I came home. My, my brain didn't accept the idea that now I was home and I was safe. And so I was constantly, I, I wouldn't ever let my back face the door, stuff like that. And it, my subconscious was reminding me every night that, oh, you're in this incredible danger and so is your family. And then that graduated to something called uh, night terrors with sleep paralysis, which I really don't recommend. That was terrible. Um, and, and then eventually, after years and years of this, um, what happened was, is I became emotionally numb because, and I can explain all this in this really clinical way now because I sure. had the therapy at the time. I didn't talk about any of this. I just secretly thought I was losing my mind. Emotional numbness came from, I had all these negative emotions and intrusive thoughts. And so it was like my brain would deploy countermeasures against them, right? To just suppress the emotions. But the countermeasures, they're not like smart bombs, right? They're like area bombs. So they just suppress all the emotions. So eventually, like you, you, you have experiences that you know, like at one point my son was potty training and uh, he peed in the toilet and it was a big deal. And he came out and he raised his hands in the air to celebrate and then he pooped on the floor. Obviously, this was hilarious, and I could kind of feel that this was really funny, but it was like the joy and the emotions of it were like just behind a thin wall. You yeah, know? you're numb to a lot that of That was the numbness, and so it kind of robbed me of the good emotions, too. And then, uh, you know, after about a decade of not being able to get a full night's sleep ever, um, uh, hardly ever, and then the numbness and all that, eventually you get depressed. Uh, and then if you're depressed long enough, you get suicidal ideation. And... I explain all of it that way because I thought before I ever learned anything about PTSD that it was like, why would I want to be diagnosed with PTSD? It's like a, it seemed like a terminal diagnosis to me. You get PTSD and either your career ends at the least or your life ends at the most. But what I learned through therapy and getting sort of a master's degree in my own brain is that, no, I, I became depressed because I had untreated PTSD for so long and I became suicidal because I was depressed for so long. And, right. and so that meant that those two things were really the first things to lift after a couple months of therapy, because once I started to address the underlying trauma, those symptoms that grew out of the original symptoms subsided first. Did you find that for this period where you were you know, barely getting sleep and nightmares, like, did you find any degradation in your performance or had your body gotten so good at masking all of this that you had almost an adrenaline that could just keep you running? In retrospect, it definitely degraded my performance, degraded, degraded yeah. my performance. It did both. Um, it was so bad it degraded it. Yeah. Uh, it, it uh, in retrospect, it, it, it definitely degraded my performance, but I didn't know that, right? Um, I knew I felt terrible and, uh, and I was in pain, like literal physical pain all the time because I wasn't sleeping and my mental health was affecting, like I have a lower back issues anyway, but it made it way worse. But I thought, and I better, I think a lot of people do this. I told myself, you know, I just don't need as much sleep as other people. Right. And I had a, I had a context. I've like, heard that a lot, by the way. Right. And particularly like other CEOs. Other, yeah. I mean, like anybody in high performing anything. Actually, that's not true. Anybody. Like yeah. people working nine to five who also have kids, like they're all telling themselves, I just don't need as much sleep. And I had a reason to tell myself that story, which was, you know, I'm a soldier. 
right? Like I never stopped seeing myself as a soldier. It's like, I don't need as much sleep. Now that I'm in the post-traumatic growth phase of my life, uh, and thanks to whoop, I track my sleep and that kind of thing, I know exactly how much sleep I need, and it's way more than I was getting. So I was, I was uh, actually somebody used the term with me once that I really liked, which is I was over-functioning. That was my coping mechanism, was I threw myself into my career because that's what was in front of me and available, and that's what provided adrenaline, which is why I don't ever judge or separate myself from anyone who chose uh, any other vice, right? Like substance or alcohol or anything like that, because like, had I not had this ambitious political career in front of me that I could use to push myself forward and to create a coping mechanism and self-medicate, clearly I would have turned to something else. It's so interesting you, you talking about this whole progression. And I wonder just from, from the process of taking on therapy, what, what led you to taking that step? And then what were some of the moments in that process where you started to see this wall, as you described it, the thin wall mm -hmm. that was blocking your emotions start to kind of tear down? Yeah, um, well, so there were two events that led me to finally saying like, okay, it's, it's time to go get therapy. And it was sort of a two-step process. Step one was, I was really at the zenith of my political career. I was, I was getting ready uh, to run for president. I was basically running for president, uh, doing everything except, except saying, saying the words. Because yeah, yeah. of the legal implications, right? But I'd been to Iowa and New Hampshire like a dozen times. I'd been to 47 states to give speeches inside of a year. Wow. You know, had barely been home at all. And, uh, and then I gave... Um, the keynote address at like the largest uh, Democratic fundraiser, uh, annual fundraiser in New Hampshire. And it was like, I think the year before me, the keynote speaker was like Elizabeth Warren and the year after me, it was Biden, something like that. Sure. So it was like, Good signs. this was the moment, right? Like my parents watched it on national television, right? And the speech went great. And at that point, I was really coping by chase, by going endorphin high to endorphin high. So it was like, I would go from big performance to big performance to media interview to whatever, and that would bridge me to the next one, the, the endorphins from it. And this was and, the biggest one. And it's just worth pausing to appreciate, like you were at this point maybe eight years or something into un undiagnosed PTSD. Yeah. yeah, like eight or nine, yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. and here you are on a national stage giving a speech in front of yep. you know, millions of people theoretically watching this. Projecting uh, the image of somebody who's got it all got together. It all figured out. And telling myself, I've got it all figured out. Telling yeah. myself, yeah, you know, I have these sleep problems, but like, whatever, you know, it's, it's no big deal. Um, and, and minimizing it all for myself. And, and the speech went really, really well. And, uh, and then the next morning, um, the, the TSA guy in the Manchester airport looks at my ID and says, oh, it's the next president. Like, I should be, I'm just, should be right, right up here, right? And I'm feeling great. And, and usually that sort of a high would last me a few days. And by the time uh, my butt hit the seat in the plane, I just felt empty. And I remember being like, well, that seems, this is new, this is serious. And so within a very short period of time, uh, I decided I wasn't gonna run for president, I was gonna run for mayor of my hometown, Kansas City, which was a race I was extremely likely to win, but it was also, mostly for me, it was me trying to find something to fill the hole. Like, I, I didn't know what to do, so I was like, I know what I need to do, I need to, go home, that's what a lot of us do when we don't know what to do. I need to stop flying around the country, I need to go home, and I need to be able to see progress in my own community. Because if I can see the change I'm making, that'll make a difference. 
So that was step one. Step two was that campaign about three months in was going great. You know, it was the first campaign I'd ever been in where I was like, I was supposed to win, which sounds like bragging. But like, if you go from running for president to running to mayor, your hometown, you have a good shot. like you, yeah. if you if you're not the front runner, like what were you doing in the first place? And uh, and I should have I knew I should have been feeling great because it should have been a lot of fun. This is 2018, 2019, 2018. And uh, and so but I started getting aggressively worse. Like I started it was alarming because suddenly I was getting worse a lot faster and the suicidal ideation became a lot more frequent. And uh, I just ran out of ideas and I called um, the Veterans Crisis Line um, and uh, which is now just the same number for everybody. Now it's I think 988 for everybody, but at the time it was a special line. And I remember I called and I was really timid and I, I felt like an imposter. Like I, I had always told myself that uh, I didn't earn PTSD so I can't have PTSD. And that just comes out of a, I think we all do that to some degree, but like in the military, they, there's a necessary form of brainwashing where they teach you, hey, what you're doing is no big deal. And I say necessary because like if they didn't teach us that, like I couldn't go into meetings with guys you might want to cut my head off over and over again unless I thought like this is no big deal. But when you get out, nobody disabuses you of that. Nobody's like, actually, it was kind of a big deal. <laughs> right. So like, so I still believe that, yeah. right? Yeah. And so I called the Veterans Crisis Line thinking, okay, I want some kind of help but like, they're probably gonna tell me, hey, keep this channel clear. Like this is for people who have real problems. And the, one of the first questions the woman asked me was, uh, have you had suicidal thoughts? And the only person up until that point I'd ever said that out loud to was my wife. And as soon as I said it out loud, I got very emotional. But the thing that, that really mattered for me was the sound of her voice when she was talking to me was it became clear to me right away that I sounded exactly like everybody else she was talking to. Right. And that was the big realization for me that like, I'm not different, I'm not special. I'm just like any other vet. And I remember saying to my wife, I got hurt over there all those years ago and I had no idea. And that's when I made the decision like to save my own life and, and to stop everything and to go get help. This is maybe a naive question, but I think it might be useful for the broader audience. What does it mean to have suicidal thoughts? Sure, it's, I think it's a really important question. Um, well, for me, so, I, I can only speak of my own experience, right? And uh, mine, I, I addressed it, I think, early in the process relative to suicidal thoughts, as explained to me by my therapist, which is to say that he said to me at one point when I was trying to explain what it felt like, he asked me, he said, did it just feel like you'd be better off dead? And I was like, yes, that's what it felt like. And there were a couple of reasons. One, I was just tired of feeling the way I felt. Um, I, I, it wasn't just I was unhappy, like it was painful all the time. But then the other part of it for me was I felt like a terrible burden to all the people around me um, because I felt like so many people had aligned their life around mine and I, I just felt like I was disappointing them all the time. And I, I got to a point where I genuinely believed or was really beginning to believe that my wife and my son, this before my daughter was born, that my wife and my son would be better off without me. And that's a really dangerous place. Now, I went and got help before I got to the point where like I had a plan or where I started to like sure. give things away or anything like that. Um, but I remember my therapist telling me like, it's good that you came in when you did because that's the beginning of it. It's when you just feel like you'd be, you'd be better off dead. For people less familiar with, with therapy, what does that process look like mm. in the first few weeks or months? How often are you going? So. Not to overly plug the book, but one of the things I'm really proud of in Invisible Storm 
is that basically Act Three of the book, uh, and I will answer the question in a second. Yeah, please. But Act Three of the book, um, I really take the reader inside the therapy sessions because I went and I got uh, from the VA, I got my therapist notes, and so I build I build the third part of the book around the therapy sessions because I thought it was really important to make therapy more accessible for people uh, because I, I didn't know anything about it before I did it and I think that made it intimidating. Um, what it was like was, uh, you know, I went into it, I think, with the preconceived notion that it would be like um, what I also imagine like chemo to be like, like as almost as if you were going to be hooked up to something and just gradually <laughs> sit there and wait for this very painful thing to hopefully cure you, you know. Um, so I thought I thought of it as very passive, and that's probably because of the movies where somebody goes in and they sit on a couch and they just talk. And, but it was actually much more like physical therapy or like grad school because I, I went in and with my therapist, the VA, we did two kinds of therapy. We did prolong, prolonged exposure, which I referenced earlier, which for me was um, a combination of retelling to him some of my more traumatic or scary experiences overseas and then uh, he would have me record myself on my on my phone and then i went to weekly therapy so then between the sessions each day i they were like 45 minute recordings i would have to put in uh, headphones and i wasn't allowed to multitask i had to close my eyes and listen to myself retell the story and what it did is it it forced me to re-experience it and prolong the exposure to the point where uh, i remember at we did the first story we did after a few weeks, I went into my therapist's name is Nick. And I said, Nick, I, I'm bored of this one. Can we do another one? And he was like, great, that's the goal. Like when you, when you experience boredom listening to it, we can move on to the next story. Uh, the other part of prolonged exposure was homework and tasks during the week, like going to a restaurant and trying to spend 45 minutes with my back to the door without turning around and stuff like that. Um, and then uh, the other part was cognitive processing therapy which was much more like going to school. It was like, I would talk about how I was feeling, my thoughts, my symptoms, and then he would literally go to the whiteboard and he would like draw out how PTSD works and basically explain, explain to me how my brain works. And then he would like just draw lines to the symptoms. And it was very analytical. Um, and, uh, and the two of them together worked very well for me. There's a lot of different kinds of, of trauma therapy, but those two worked well for me. It's really interesting this idea of prolonged exposure, and I'm I'm less familiar with it. But you know, thinking about how every time you got in the car, you would have this mm -hmm. flashback to to being in a combat situation or preparing for a combat situation, and then this idea of re-listening to a recording mm -hmm. of an experience. And the more you did that, and the more actually likely you were to get bored of that, yeah, the more that would create a release. The other thing that's interesting in listening to you talk about it is going through the process takes work. Yeah, lots. And for some people, that might be something to overcome, but there's also a huge category of people that find themselves in the situation you were in because mm -hmm. they are hard driving people. Right. Right. And mm -hmm. so in a way to be able to work through it is a positive, I imagine. My first session with my therapist, Nick, he said to me, he was like, you know, there's three ways that this therapy work works. He's like, there's in resonance where you just like move in here. He's like, and then uh, there's like daily, um, outpatient and there's weekly outpatient and I was like I didn't want to move in there so I was like I'll do daily and he's like why and I was like well because that's what I'm good at like I, I <laughs> let's attack it you yeah know? and he goes yeah I'm gonna put you on weekly <laughs> and I was like why and he goes because I think what you need is to be forced to slow down yeah. 
and to go home and do the homework and and not to try and like do this fast and uh, so it's really funny that you say that that's good advice did you ever get into meditating yeah mm -hmm. i did i did I'm, i'm not as good about it as i used to be my wife is really really good about it but the the prolonged exposure therapy was sort of like a gateway to meditation for me because it forced me to close sit your there eyes and close, listen. yeah and when every time i don't know about you but every time i get in a groove with it i'm very happy i have and then i can quickly get out of that groove yeah i mean i i was under a lot of stress building this company especially very early on mm-hmm. when i was around so i started whoop when i was 22 years old and then when i was mm-hmm. around 24 I had this team of maybe 40 people or so, mm-hmm. and I'd raised tens of millions of dollars. And <laughs> the whole thing felt totally overwhelming. And, yeah. And launching the <laughs> I would imagine. Yeah. And so, uh, and so I had a panic attack around then, and I just realized I needed a reset, like mm-hmm. something to help me mm-hmm. recalibrate. I was drinking too much alcohol, drinking too much coffee, I wasn't mm-hmm. sleeping enough. And so mm-hmm. uh, I did a four-day meditation yeah. uh, program called Transcendental Meditation. Okay. And, you know, from then on, it's been like 10 years now, I've done it every day. So, like, how long do you do it? I do day? it for about 20 minutes a morning. I used to do it 20 in the morning, 20 in the afternoon. Okay. I probably did that for the first five years. Mm-hmm. And then it got to a place where I felt like I got most of the bang from the morning. And are you at the point where, like, you're not using an app for it or anything. You just you can just sit and do it. Yeah, I never used an app for really? it. It was it was always single player, and <laughs> I I found that I found it's evolved a lot over the years. Mm-hmm. You know, in the in the you know first months or years of doing it, it was more about finding a mechanism to reset mm-hmm. or to prepare for the day. Whereas now, for for me, it actually is more about evolving into who I am throughout the whole day. Mm. And I have moments in the day which feel similar to the meditation. That's interesting. And so the, 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 yeah, it's almost like the walls of meditating have mm-hmm. blurred. That's great. Yeah, which is, I think, I think it's just something that happens if you do it for a long yeah, yeah. time. Huh. But I do feel like there's levels to it. Yeah. And, and I do think it's a bit of a superpower. Yeah, no, it for sure is. It yeah. for sure is. Like, um, all right, you've inspired me. I'm going to yeah. try I, and get I would get back it. it. Yeah, yeah, get back into it. Let's talk a little bit about Whoop because I'm mm-hmm. always intrigued sure. when super fit, hard driving people working through PTSD, like you've got mm-hmm. a lot of interesting characteristics mm-hmm. for Whoop data. Yeah. How did you first get onto it? So when I started therapy and started to kind of hit a good glide path with therapy, uh, that's when I started to get really curious about like, okay, I'm starting to address my mental health. I'd like to address my physical health now, which I had completely ignored ever since I'd gotten out of the army. Uh, because it was just sort of like, and I'm sure you've seen this temptation, it was like, well, nothing is as important as this thing I'm doing professionally, so I'm just going to drive hard at that. And then then it was like, okay, I'm feeling better. I want to go try to feel better physically. And so uh, one of the first things I did, I had a really good friend who I'm sure listens to this, so I'm going to name check uh, Jesse Jacob because she'll be thrilled. Um, what up, Jesse? Yeah, there you go. No, now you're really going to make her day. Uh, she was... Uh, she was using whoop and so she she was like she said to my wife and and, and I, she was like you, you got to try this so and it was right when i was like on the kick of like i want to start working out again getting healthy and so i did and for me as a person who is like very naturally competitive and i mean just the gamification of each day of like can i beat yesterday can i oh it gives me like a strange score can i hit it yeah it was like i mean what you created was like made for a dude like me um and, and it just 
it just made it so much easier. Like it, and, and then at the end of the month, I could go back and like, how did I do? You know, because the monthly assessments or the weekly assessments. And then I ended up for a long time pairing that with uh, meal tracking. Hmm. And I got to the point where it, it was like too much. Like I would, I had a, I had a spreadsheet where I would enter like yeah, my caloric intake yeah. and burn. And, but what's funny is I literally never once went back and like used any of the data in that spreadsheet I created, but I loved entering it. And, and at the, in the middle of the week when I was tempted to eat something I shouldn't or not do a workout, I would think of the moment where I was going to enter the final numbers into that spreadsheet and it would drive me and it worked, it worked for three years. And then I just got tired of entering my food all the time. Uh, but, and it sort of, I got to the point where it was like, you know, those, uh, like when you watch the World Series of Poker and it will show you the percentage chance of the winning hand. And then it's so impressive because you know that each of the players have all those percentages memorized. That's like me with calories and macros right. now. <laughs> I'm like, I don't. You, you built the muscle. Yeah. Like it's, it's, it's uh, overkill to write it down. But, but that was the big thing is it, it really, it, it allowed me to see progress somewhere other than the mirror. And that was, you know, then that was before I started playing baseball competitively again. So I had for a while, I think like an unhealthy thing where the only place I could see progress was in the mirror. And, and so whoop kind of gave me an alternative to that so that I wasn't like obsessing over like how many abs could I see or whatever. And I think, I think also being able, again, for a hard driving person like yourself, probably to be able to see how much you slept and compete on that dimension. That was huge. Right. Because it's easy to compete on the dimension of mm -hmm. bigger, faster, stronger, work out more. But that, having recovery as well as a story. That was huge, particularly from a PTSD perspective, because even when I got through therapy and, and the nightmares became much less frequent, I still had sort of this built in like muscle memory of fearing sleep. Because a big part of the reason that I, in addition to being woken up by nightmares all night for the 11 years before I got therapy, I just wouldn't go to sleep because it was like, sleep was just a hellscape, right? So like I would do anything to keep myself awake until I just, you know, would basically pass out. And that is a thing that I still deal with is that even though sleep is much more pleasant for me now, there is a muscle memory for me that like fights sleep. And having like the sleep coach that's like, no, seriously, dude, like tonight, like, you miss a lot of sleep, right? Like 937, <laughs> you got to go to sleep tonight. Um, combined with like waking up in the morning and seeing the bad sleep score, what was, however, um, uh, discouraging about it was my wife is like the most champion sleeper right. you know, ever. And I would that wake up next to her and she was 100% every morning, right? And she is also one of those people who she falls asleep in a position and then she wakes up eight and a half hours later in the in same the position. position. Yeah, and she says, you know, I'm like sleeping next to a rotisserie chicken. So, <laughs> like, um, so that was sometimes discouraging, but it also gave me something to strive for. Have you seen that? I mean, with all the therapy you've done, all the work you've done on PTSD, and it sounds like you've been on Whoop for a few years now, mm -hmm. have you seen just sort of a general progress up and to the right, or do you notice setbacks in your data? No, I've seen a general progress. Now, the thing is, is like, I, I work out much differently than I used to. So, you know, when I first started, I was, I was basically working out like an endurance athlete, but all I did is I did the Murph Challenge once a year, but I treated that as if I was like, doing an Ironman or something right. that I wasn't. And so that created one kind of data. And then three years ago, I, I joined this like competitive men's uh, baseball team, like not softball, but like baseball team. And for the first year I kept working out that way and I kept getting hurt because I was so lean. 
And then I realized like, oh, baseball players aren't, that's not how baseball players are built. So I've switched over to much more of like a weight training, flexibility, a lot. I still do cardio, but it's a lot less cardio because I'm 42 years old and I've realized like, no, I've got to focus on the movements that keep me from getting hurt, you know, so I can keep playing. And so the, I would say like the sleep data has improved a lot uh, and that kind of thing. But then the other data is just much different. I think the biggest thing probably is that now I can wake up and I can pretty much guess what my recovery is before I see it. Mm. And, uh, and I think that's just internalizing the data, you know? Yeah, that's probably, you've probably gotten to a place like that probably 75% of the time. And then yeah. the 25% is where something's going on that you don't, you can't even feel like you're getting mm -hmm. sick or yep. that was the whole COVID moment for a lot of people oh, too, yeah. where everyone realized they had COVID on wound. Yeah, no, I remember that. And a few weeks ago, I, I actually whooped, told me I was getting sick the day before my body told me I was getting sick. Yeah. And, I, I, and it was like, you know, whatever the metrics, the five out of five, like I was like three out of five and respiratory. Yeah, right. And I was like, what is that? I feel the health fine. monitor, yeah. Yeah, and I ignored it. And I went and I played, it, <laughs> I played a double header, baseball there double header that yeah. night. And then, I was, and then I was sick, like really sick for two weeks. Probably would have been like four days if I'd have just paid attention to what it was telling me. Are there specific things you track in the Whoop Journal, like around supplements or behaviors or therapy? Like, I'm curious what you yeah. might be trying to dial in. I haven't been using it as much lately, but I was using it for a long period of time um, to track, uh, I see, I'm trying to remember what I was using the most, um, whether or not I would wear the blue light glasses. Yeah. And, and a lot of the reason I haven't been using it as much is because like I got the answers for a lot of stuff. Sure. Um, I used to use it for how alcohol affected it, but honestly, since COVID, I, I don't know, people went in one direction or the other during COVID. I, I was always, I would drink socially and I just wasn't as social during COVID. So like, I have like two beers a year at this point. Um, so that also so because- Alcohol's out. Well, and also because Whoop was like, this, yeah. is, this doesn't work for Whoop you. Like, does I'm just cold. not good at it. Yeah. You know, like I, it wasn't working for me. Um, and then also, uh, it got me to stop eating so late because like that's a big one yeah because i was it was definitely affecting my sleep um and there's others too but i you know i don't remember what all of them are but uh but there, there was a point where honestly i got so into the journal that it was like it was like a good five minutes in the morning of just answering questions <laughs> and i was like probably and i knew all the answers anyway you know and i was like i could probably dial back from this but again I just love data, like, and I love the gamification of it. So I had to kind of quit the journal cold turkey for a while. I'll probably, but now you got all this new stuff in there, so I'll probably go back to it. Well, very appreciative to have you on Whoop, and so it's it's always oh, good yeah. to hear how people use it. Let's talk a little bit about your political career. Sure. So, what was the moment where you said, "Okay, I want to run"? You know, look, I, I grew up. My family had not been in politics, but it was a public service oriented family. So, like, my folks were juvenile probation officers. My dad had been a cop, and. Uh, and so nobody ever said like you got to be in public service, but they kind of modeled it and and then I did debate You know was a baseball and debate in high school. That was my life and I found that I thought I was this great baseball player and I was pretty good but I realized like I Was better at debate than I was at baseball, right? Also, I'm 5'11 and I was 5'11 in like ninth grade and I really thought I was gonna keep getting bigger But I did right um, and so debate became the big thing and and I thought it was just debating that I liked, but I realized at some point toward the end of high school, no, I like, I like the policy stuff. That, that's what I'm really into. 
So then I go to, you know, DC for school. I study political science and I became like most of those kids who were like, I'm going to run for office, but I didn't really know what the heck that meant. And then I think I had already decided I was going to run for the state legislature. That was bef even before I deployed. But it was still, I think at that point, kind of like an extension of baseball for me. It was, it was another competitive thing. It was a game. I knew what I believed in, but it was really a competitive outlet. And then uh, when I was deployed, you know, that was the first time in my life that I'd ever been on the receiving end of politically driven decisions that negatively affected my life. Like, I grew up with enough privilege that there were no politicians that could make decisions that was going to take food off our table or anything like that. And then I'm overseas and like I'm in vehicles without armor. I remember there was like a mission where we were supposed to have helicopters to go a, a very dangerous route. And we ended up going over the road. And I don't know whether this was true or right, but the way it was explained to me was, well, a lot of those resources are being moved to Iraq. And that to me felt like, you know, Iraq felt like a politically driven decision versus Afghanistan. And all of that shaped up to really having the experience for the first time that a lot of people don't need to go to war to experience because they grow up differently than me in America, which is being on the receiving end of politically driven decisions that affected me negatively. And then I just started to see a through line from that to people getting cut off Medicaid for political reasons or whatever. And, I, and I'm not saying like that that caused me to run, but I think it, it imbued me with the righteous anger at which I ran. Um, and it, it helped me really understand why I was doing it. Yeah, I, I like this idea that that you saw the competitive nature of it. You were good at debate. Right. And so you planted this seed of this is this could be an intellectual baseball. Yeah. And then I imagine as you felt the experiences that you had and you saw how political decisions really influence your life directly, you realize how many people in America that happens for. And yeah. it became a real cause. I guess a shorter way of saying it would be I grew up a little, right? Yeah. You know, right. I went from like Certain maturation. Yeah. yeah, a political science kid and, and then eventually law student to like someone who had experienced something and being like, oh, it's not a game. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's I think of that as when I when I really chose it as a as a line of work. And I think it was uh, President Obama, who at one point said you were the future of the Democratic Party, which is pretty high praise. It was very nice of him. Um, yeah. So where, where is politics for you today? Um, you know, I think of it as, I, I still feel like I'm in politics. It's just not what I do for a living. Sure. Um, you know, I, I still have the podcast uh, and, and I do things in politics. I, I obviously have a lot of friends who are still running um, and I get involved in campaigns. I don't get heavily involved. It's not my profession, but I still feel like I'm in public service because, and I'm sure we'll talk about it in a second, what I do on the nonprofit side, but, but usually when people ask, obviously what they mean is, are you going to run for something? And the thing is, is that one, I'm really enjoying my life right now. And I used to think about the future obsessively because the present was like unbearable for me. Right. So it was like much easier to think, well, I'll do this and I'll do this. And, I'll, and I would plan it to great detail. And now I'm just really enjoying my life. And so I have no need to plan it, which sounds like a politician being like, I have no current plans, <laughs> right. but I genuinely have yeah. no current plans to do that. And then the other piece of it is I know for certain that I have made a greater impact in the last few years since I stopped holding or running for office, uh, a greater impact on the world than I did the entire time I was in office. Between um, you know, my day job, I'm president of National Expansion for Veterans Community Project. I, I literally, my job 
is to build campuses around the country uh, that are meant to you know, prevent veteran suicide and end veteran homelessness, which is the best civilian job I've ever had. Just on that point, what, yeah. what are a few what are a few key learnings from that? Like, what are the ways to, mm -hmm. to really help our veterans? So at the policy level, it starts with not starting with the premise that Congress always starts with, which is, and it's not an advocacy organization, but just for whatever reason, I'll give you a policy answer first. The premise that it always starts with is, how do we make sure this or that veteran's benefit doesn't go to someone who doesn't deserve it? And the problem with that premise is, I don't believe there are veterans who don't deserve those benefits. And the federal government actually has a pretty limiting definition of what a veteran is. At our organization, we don't. Anybody who raised their right hand to serve, they get 100% of our services. That's a big lesson for me. But I think one of the others is just that, you know, uh, I think a lot of times when people talk about veterans, uh, and particularly veterans from a charity perspective, we talk about them um, as if they're solely victims. And the truth is that veterans, including homeless veterans, have a ton of service left to give, and they have a desire to give it in most cases. And particularly this generation of veterans is so uniquely uh, skilled and has such a unique experience set because you know, this conflict over the last 20 years is so different than any of the ones before it. Like The decisions that shaped history over the last several years were largely not decisions made by generals who were looking at big sand tables, moving divisions. They were decisions made by like corporals who were on street corners trying to decide how to handle an inflamed situation. Meaning responsibility has been pushed down to the lowest possible level because it's this asymmetric street by street, house by house conflict. And that means that, you know, if you give me like an Ivy League MBA uh, applicant and like an E5 sergeant with four years and, and one deployment for a management position, I, I'm gonna take the E5 sergeant um, because they've managed millions of dollars worth of equipment and, and you know, people's lives. And, and I think that that is a big misunderstanding as to how much potential um, that veterans have, particularly in an age where this is the longest consecutive period in American history without some form of mandatory service. So as a result, the scarcity of those veterans and that experience, in my mind, should drive up the value. It seems like really powerful work that you've gotten to over the last few years. And it's the best. Yeah. It's the best. And, and, and then the other stuff, like just on a lark, you know, my translator's family was stuck in Afghanistan after the U.S. pulled out and they had done things for American forces and they were under threat. And I kind of by accident started a 501c3 was able to get them out we did like this we faked a wedding and Mazari sharif got them and a bunch of other people out that became a 501c3 that uh has gotten 2,000 people out of the country that's amazing and it was all like going to my point of like thank you and going to my point of like if i had been in office i wouldn't have done any of that i don't know that i would have been able to save anybody you know but instead I was able to just grind away for two years at this thing I cared about. And now my translator's family, they live, they live six minutes from our house. They're on our cell phone plan. They got, How you know, cool is that? How and, good did you feel when the translator got out? Uh, well, so, so my translator had been out, but it was uh, his family was still there. But like, yeah, when the plane went up, when we finally got that plane in the air and when it crossed out of Afghan airspace, yeah, like I just collapsed in tears. I also hadn't slept in weeks, um, but, uh, it was 
it wasn't just euphoric. It was like it wasn't supposed to happen. And um, uh, it's hard to explain, but that experience, it's the most important thing I've ever done other than you know, marrying my wife and raising our kids. And had I been, I'm going back to your original question, had I been trying to pursue office at that time, I think I would have been so preoccupied with defending the Biden administration on cable news that I never would have even thought that maybe I have the power to like, or the capacity to marshal enough people in a coalition to rescue people. Uh, and I'm, I'm really proud of that, but I never could have done it if I ran office. Well, that's well said. So Kansas City, are, are the Chiefs gonna win another Super Bowl here? The Chiefs are gonna win every Super Bowl. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, uh, we have gone from a town with a sports inferiority complex to- The cool kids. To, to Patriot fan level obnoxious yeah. and proud of it. Yeah. Like we are, we are proudly insufferable at this point. Yeah. Uh, Invisible Storm coming out soon. Yeah. Tell In us a little bit more yeah, about thanks. it. Um, so uh, the full title is Invisible Storm: A Soldier's Memoir of Politics and PTSD. Uh, the hardcover came out last year. It was a New York Times bestseller. Um, it is basically uh, it, it is my memoir about what it's like to you know the the age-old tale of um, running for president while uh, secretly suffering from a psychological disorder, <laughs> um, right. while holding nothing back uh, from the reader, um, but then also the story of, of reaching post-traumatic growth um, and, and how I did that and, and what it means for me. Um, I'm really proud of the book. Uh, all of my proceeds from it go to Veterans Community Project. Um, Amazing. Yeah, thanks. And so the paperback comes out uh, in September. Amazing. And, uh, and it sounds like you also touch upon some of the therapy that we, we spoke about earlier. So. Yeah, I go pretty far into it uh, in the book. It's, uh, um, I, I, am, I am very proud of the book, so yeah, thank you. And people can also find you on your, your podcast, Majority 54. Yeah, thanks. It's, uh, thanks for mentioning it. Majority 54 is, is our podcast where um, anybody who's coming from a progressive perspective or is just progressive curious, uh, it is, what's different about it is, is it is my co-host Ravi Gupta and I uh, helping people not lose relationships in their life by helping them have conversations with like conservative friends and family members, maybe bring them over to their side, but at least not lose the relationship. Well, you're doing a lot of amazing things uh, in this country. And thank you again for your service and, and for being on Woo. Hey, thanks, Will. Thanks for, uh, for the conversation and for uh, bringing my son and I out here. We're having an amazing time. So thank you. Awesome. Thank you to Jason for joining the show to share his military and political experience, as well as his battle with PTSD. If you enjoyed this episode of the Whoop Podcast, be sure to leave a rating or review. Check us out on social at Whoop, at Will Ahmed. If you have a question you want to see answered on the podcast, email us, podcast.whoop.com, or call us, 508-443-4952. If you're thinking about joining Whoop, you can visit our website to sign up for a 30-day free trial membership. New members can use the code WILL to get a $60 credit on Whoop Accessories. And that's a wrap, folks. Thank you all for listening. We'll catch you next week on the Whoop Podcast. As always, stay healthy and stay in the green.